All right. So uh, we have um, a very similar uh, topic as we did last week because we're doing part two of chapter six. Uh, chapter six is the final chapter. And there is a little bit of a conclusion as well um, at the end of this chapter that also attempts to also kind of summarize thoughts as well over the book. Um, and so that's what we're going to be going over this morning, the irony of eschatology and, and the final thoughts of, of G.K. Beale as we wrap up his book. Um, so what we talked about last week was, if you recall, the Old Testament view of end times, of that early ancient view of end times is mentioned in the Old Testament many times where the last days, the latter days were mentioned. What were, what came to mind among the Old Testament, not only saints, but uh, those living in those days, how they would understand it from the scripture. Um, they had this understanding of who Christ would be when the Messiah would come and what we would do. And it was largely understood to be a, because um, it was going to be forceful, as we talked about that, that stone that was not made by human hands that came and broke down that, that statue that Nebuchadnezzar dreamed of, if you remember that. So there'd be a forceful overtaking. Um, but not in the way that they imagine it. It wouldn't be a physical overtaking as, as it would be a spiritual in Christ's first coming. So that was a, a large part of what we talked about last week. This week we're talking about um, these final topics here. The Knights of the Cross and their end time battle. So as Christians, militant Christians, that's what you are, a militant Christian living in this day and age in these last days. Um, what is our battle? What's that look like? And the various ways that we reign with Christ in day-to-day -day living. Certainly there's ironies here to be held. And then conclusion, what irony is being played out in your life? Well, God willing, we will cover these and uh, be blessed because of it. All right, the Knights of the Cross in their end time battle. It's no small matter of the irony that's present in the unseen reality of Christ's kingdom. And also, of course, of our great enemy, the devil. These are spiritual realities. And it's not something that we've made up. It's according to scripture. That's what the Bible clearly tells us. Our reign as believers, um, as being in this kingdom of Christ here on earth is priests in that kingdom. Um, it's a reality that the Apostle John mentions in more than one place in the book of Revelation. We also talked about a little bit last week about the book of Revelation. We're going to talk about it more so today. In Revelation chapter 1 verses 5 and 6, it is repeated verbatim again in chapter 5 verses 9 and 10, where it says that the Lord has made us a kingdom priests to, to his God and Father. It's the church. It's the church. And as Adam was to be a priest in the, in the Garden of Eden, um, 
doing what, what God had told him to do and, and carrying out those duties, those kingdom duties, we have the same thing here. We have it as the church. We, here we see Christians, we exercise a rule in the same way that Jesus did. We're always pointing back and looking that, to our master to whom we ident- identify with. Jesus was victorious by persevering in his witness to the Father, even though we know he was pressured and tempted to stop doing this. You know, we can certainly think of um, the 40 days and 40 nights on the mount being tempted by the devil. But there were numerous other ways he was being uh, approached and pressured, pressured to become this king that they wanted to set him up as. Of course, that would take him away from his duty and what he had already covenanted to do in terms of dying on the cross. So all these temptations came to him as he persevered in his witness. He persisted in this witness and he didn't compromise even when he was threatened with death. And it's the same for those who follow Christ. The same for us. This is why Christians carry out, that's why we carry out our last days or our end times kingship, as Beale talks about it, in the same way as our Lord, the same way as our master, our savior. He is our master after all. Beale, he writes, he says, just as Jesus' witness spiritually conquered Satan at the cross, just as it did that spiritually at the cross, so a Christian's witness overcomes Satan. Since it is the means by which unbelievers hear the gospel, believe, and hence are delivered from Satan's bondage. He goes on, he says, Christians are to reproduce in themselves the witness of Christ. And we're to do this in word, things we say, and our lifestyle, how we live. We are to live a cruciform life. That means a life that is um, shadowed in the cross. Okay? A cruciform life in conformity with our crucified Savior. We also may be tempted to compromise. Tempted to take a, a low profile, if you will, as we go about witnessing in our role here as, as kingdom priests. And when we resist temptation, as our Lord did, resist temptation to compromise, and we faithfully persevere, well, we could suffer for that here on earth. And we know this. We, we, we don't have to suffer here in America as we do as we know some of our brothers do in other areas in the Middle East and where Christianity is treated hostily. But it could mean we could suffer with our lives, but we're going to suffer in some way. And we're going to, the irony here again, as we were talking about last week, is we're going to appear to be defeated. And we will appear to be defeated in the earthly sphere of things. But as Bill continues, he says, as long as 
Christians maintain their witness. They are spiritually reigning over Satan. I think that's pretty cool when you remember that. When we are resisting temptation, it could be big or small. We are spiritually reigning over Satan in the midst of apparent defeat. We may look defeated. We may look as today's, as the zeitgeist in the world today and um, how man is viewed and how we look inward so much these days and defining things and, and what our realities are instead of looking outside of us where God is. Um, we're going to look defeated even when we give up certain pleasures. We may think, well, that's not a defeat. Well, in the eyes of the world, it is. In fact, it's immoral in some ways to deny yourself these earthly passions. And the world sees it as foolish. It sees as you as being a defeated person, but not, not at all. We are spiritually reigning over Satan in those instances, just as Christ did. And that's the point that Beale wants to make here, this ironic point. With Christ, believers hold power over the keys of death and Hades in this regard. As their witness is, as Beale writes, the catalyst of the Spirit in delivering people from the domain of darkness and tearing off the blindfold, which the God of this world, and who is that? That's Satan. In which the God of this world has blinded the mind of unbelievers. Hold the power over the keys of death in Hades. This is happening, really, truly happening in a spiritual realm. Brothers and sisters, it's so important for us to be praying for those spiritual eyes to see. Um, when we are downcast and looking only what it is we can behold with our eyes, what are we missing out on? There are those spiritual realities. John, he witnessed this himself. He testifies of himself in Revelation 1, verse 9. Here we have it on the screen. He says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance. There's a few things he notes there. In the tribulation, kingdom, and patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Of course, we understand the apostle was exiled here. He says he was. Because of his testimony, his witness, he appeared to be defeated, but yet he wasn't. He was spiritually reigning over Satan in this instance. So, a few things there I noted. Beale recognizes three essential elements of what it means to exercise kingship as a Christian in these present end times, in these last days that we are living in. First, the apostle had faithfully continued to witness about Jesus through his words and through his deeds, his lifestyle, the way he was living. And those good works that he purposely sought to do. In scripture elsewhere, it talks about the wisdom to know not to wait and 
and throw up the excuse that I'm waiting to be led for this, by the Spirit to do this good work. Brother and sister, if you know that good work, as James even talks about it later, you know, in his letter, you know, to know these good things and not to do them is sin. He, John, did those things in, in word and in deed. Although he had been strongly pressured to quit giving such a witness. Well, as a result, he suffered tribulation by being exiled on that island. Now, it's, it's probable that one of the ways in which he was tempted to compromise his testimony was by giving some formal public acknowledgement that Caesar was Lord, like, as you probably have heard in other Sunday schools and maybe even sermons of, you know, how they would give a pinch of, I don't know what the matter was, but they would throw it in the fire and it'd be like offering up a, something to Caesar, just something very simple. Obviously, their hearts weren't in it, but if he would only do that, they'd be satisfied. The state, the devil, in this regard. But he didn't do that. He didn't give any formal public acknowledgement that Caesar was Lord. And because he didn't do it, he suffered social and political defeat. That's what their eyes could see. Now, the second thing called out here, and that we can see in the apostle and how he endured, was this patient endurance. His patient endurance in faith and being a witness for Christ, it served as evidence as his role as a king in Christ. Now, how is that kingly? He didn't have to be convinced by the unbelievers, by the state, by the world, of what he possessed in Christ and who he was in Christ. He was resolute in these things. As a king is before his army, he patiently endured these things in faith. We have that same privilege, brothers and sisters, now. The third thing is that he was a partaker in the kingdom reigning with Christ. Truly reigning. Again, every time he endured these temptations and mortified sin in his life, killing that sin, repenting, you know, there was those spiritual victories. Reigning with Christ. He was doing this in as much as he was living a living witness to Christ. He was reigning with him. It didn't look like John was ruling as a king. But he really was because he was in Jesus. He was in union with his Savior. Which meant that he would follow the Lamb. The Lamb that was seen by John as one slain yet, yet standing. Remember that from last week. It was an ironic suffering, an ironic path that he walked, and that we all walk, brothers and sisters. This is to encourage us. We are in those last days. According to John, for a Christian to be a spiritual king also means that he is a priest. Believers are priestly mediators. What did a priest do? He mediated between the people and God. 
Believers are priestly mediators between God and ungodly people as we share our witness to Christ. In word and deed. Things we say in the lifestyle we live. Consequently, as Christ reigned as a priestly king, so do Christians rule under the ultimate lordship of Christ. We don't have delusions of grandeur. May the world never confuse those matters. We reign in Christ. But we truly do reign. As, with the, as was the case with our Lord, John clearly understands that Christians began to reign in the Messianic kingdom. After the resurrection, We've been doing so throughout the church age, all the way up to when the Lord comes back again. It's where we are in these last days. Uh, This is an essential idea. This is an idea um, also that is very contrary even to evangelical Christians today. These understanding of these last days we're living in. Many evangelical Christians... Perhaps you believe this way once yourself. I know I did. Uh, Believe that both Jesus and Christians do not reign in the Messianic kingdom prophesied in the Old Testament until after his second coming in that literal millennial age. Those who hold to this literal millennial interpretation, the end times do not begin until the final tribulation. And Jesus coming back again. That's the end times for them. That's what, not how we understand what scripture teaches. Beale, he writes, quote, he says, the New Testament views Jesus and Christians as spiritually ruling in the end times. This should already be evident from our discussions that we've had so far in this section. It, it is. Uh, This is also John's understanding, he argues. And it's his understanding, and it becomes discernible from a more in-depth look at Revelation chapter 1, verses 5, 6, and 11, where John speaks of Christ and believers already exercising their rule. We kind of looked at those last week. We already exercise rule in Christ. Furthermore, he sees this ironic dominion as a beginning fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy of the Messianic kingdom. Again, what was that stone that came and hit the the foot of iron and clay? It was Christ coming into the world, being incarnated, taking on flesh, conquering on the cross, breaking down the powers of those kingdoms. Beale writes again, he says, If it is true that Christians ironically reign on earth, through their sufferings, while being led by their heavenly Lord, what happens when a Christian dies? John answers this question in Revelation chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. He says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. This is... Jesus talking, actually, to one of the churches. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, 
that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The second death. What is the second death? It's hell. Hades. So what happens to a Christian when he dies? Upon death, the believer's soul is ushered into heaven. Hallelujah. With the Lord. In him, with par- in him with him in paradise. We join with him and we reign with him on his throne. And we'll have nothing but spiritual eyes to see. The ultimate irony here of the saints and our end time reign with Jesus is that when we experience physical death and apparent defeat because of faith, that we live out, we are given spiritual life in a victor's crown. We're not losers, big winners. If I could understate it that way. The end of our spiritual, or rather our physical existence, is the beginning of a spiritual existence with our Lord in ways that are unimaginable. All right. That's the, the kingdom we're living in now and how we serve these realities that we have. Let's talk about the various ways that we reign with Christ in day-to-day living. Right, so what, a, what are some of the different ways that we can exercise kingdom rule with Jesus in these last days? Well, uh, for one... For one, we are spiritually, we spiritually conquer by allowing ourselves to be conquered by bodily death. Yes, um, some do suffer as martyrs. And although we should never desire and wish for that for ourselves and others, we should always desire what God's will is, whatever that is, and to be looking to, to serve him faithfully. But... To, to, to die as a martyr for Christ, um, you've got to think that such a closeness with him and being able to endure in such a way that the vast majority of us will never experience this side of heaven. It's very different from the life-taking murder of that of, for example, the, the Muslim terrorist who just wants to blow someone else up. No. This type of witness to Christ is clearly not something that most of us are called to endure, but that is one way. But we also are called to die to ourselves, spiritually, every day. And we went through a small group on that recently. So many, so many ways that we are to be dying to ourselves. Uh, another, you know, you know, we are confronted with challenges that test our faith, causing us to often persevere through various temptations, you know, like we talked about John doing just in the last section. You know, those temptations that seek to compromise our faith. As we resist temptation, holding fast to Christ, 
There is that suffering from an earthly perspective, that fleshly perspective. Again, we appear to be defeated in many ways, but that's from the eyes of the unbelieving world. You know, what are some ways that this happens? Well, we could be, you know, for some of us men in the workforce being passed over with promotions at work because we're not willing to sacrifice time with the family. Not all jobs require that sacrifice in in different ways, but for some of us it would. You know, homeschooling your children, is that easy, ladies? (laughs) No. As Christians, you know, I hope you're doing it for reasons other than just that, that tailored education. You know, that's another way, homeschooling our children, sacrificing personal time and energy in order to keep them out of Caesar's corrupting influence. You know, as we continue to trust the Lord in these trials, we spiritually conquer. If we could just come away with that and remember it. Even when we fail, even when we fail and we sin, we have the free offer of God's forgiveness if we confess to him. And through that, we remain as conquerors. Jesus said himself, he said, if any would come after me, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I hope that's making even more sense, those words of Christ, what that means. Another way that we exercise kingdom rule in Christ is suffering financially, right? That's another way. Uh, You know, I already talked about how our denial of self may lead to passing on some time-devouring promotion where higher pay is promised. You know, John, the apostle, he, he notes the faithfulness of one particular church, the church of Smyrna in chapter 2 of Revelation. He talks about them being financially poor, yet rich in faith. You know, being poor isn't, it doesn't have an inherent honor. You know, being rich doesn't have inherent wickedness into it. It's what our heart does with those things, but we could be called to a a very meager life, and yet we are rich in Christ. He talked what they suffered with in the church in Smyrna were those guilds. We've talked about it before, not here in this lesson, but those guilds where they would set up guilds in these these cities and um, if you wanted to have employment opportunities to be able to capably do your work, you had to be a card-carrying member of the guild, if you will, kind of like a union. Um, in those guilds and their ceremonies, they would have pagan ceremonies, offering up um, their thanks to whatever their, their god was over their trade, if you will. And the faithful Christian couldn't do that. So they were banned from the guild, and therefore they could not practice openly anyways you know, their trade. They suffered for it 
Christ knew this. John, through Christ, was writing about it and encouraging them. That's just one example of what we may be called to endure. Likely we'll see some more hard times. We've seen some, certainly in the past, you know, three years, four years, just about, on and on and on. It's a slow boil. Um, but these, these Christians in Smyrna, they conquered in a very spiritual sense as they were being economically conquered. By persisting in faith in Christ, they were reigning with him in the end time kingdom. Now, some people forget the present application to the contemporary readers of John's apocalypse. It's not a book only for future people. He wrote to those seven churches of his day. What good would it have done if it didn't apply to them? In Romans 12, verse 1, Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. This sacrifice that leads to worship, therefore conquering in Jesus' kingdom, when we present our bodies, which includes our minds, our thoughts, you know, capturing those thoughts, capturing these things to God as a living sacrifice, we're going to be experiencing some setback here from an earthly sense. And when we do, we win a spiritual victory. Remember this. An example that Beale gives is in his book is of a husband and wife, and they disagree about what kind of house they should purchase. Uh, one of them's got to sacrifice their will and have their preference defeated in this example he gives, while at the same time believe that God will work the circumstances together for the good of the marriage. So you. Your marriage is being confronted with a challenge because of personal reasons, uh, preferences, that is. And yet, at the same time, faithfully understanding that if I were to sacrifice, that God would use that in a good way for the family. Now, this is, uh, let's not go into what those disagreements could be. You know, there is a valid disagreement or whatever. But the point is, dying to yourself and at the same time as you're doing and you're confronting these things by God's grace that ministry of the spirit in your life being able to see it while it's happening so you can faithfully persevere may that be your prayer that as you are going through these times that you will understand if to resist in and have that spiritual victory just don't go brag about it and then lose it. <laughs> That'd be a bummer. Um, Paul tells us in Ephesians 4, verse 25, that we men should be the ones, now we're inferring here, that we should be the ones on the ready to sacrifice our will for our lives when it's a matter of preference or a non-essential matter. Why? Because we are to love our wives as Christ loved the church 
And what did he do for us? This sacrifice made because of what one believes is an example of conquering an apparent psychological defeat in interpersonal relationships. I know that's a bundle, bundled phrase there, but it has, it's a powerful one these days. As everything is, again, reality is perceived on how one takes it inside and how they calculate it and understand it inwardly. That's how the world is viewing things these days. What's true to me is may not be true to you, that type of garbage. Marriage is a great place that you'll be tested in these things. You know, how do you react? Just think about it. How do you react when you are offended by someone? What do you want to do? Well, often you're going to be defensive in some way. Or you may want to get back at them in some way. Maybe it's you'll get back to them just by ignoring them for a period of time. I don't know. I've heard that's what people do. Never experienced it myself. Um, you know, there are so many different ways that we are tested in this. But again, may we have eyes to see it as we come into those things. As we go to minister to someone, someone who could be hostile, right? And and they may throw some at you, something at you, and so that you would, as the one who is spiritual, would would know to go in there and and not to be caught up in that sin. You have to be a ready spirit, one that's washed in the word. Again, that's reigning as, as and conquering in these end times as we are prepared for these battles in this way. All right. Paul's, the exhortation that Paul gives here in chapter 12, verse 1 of Romans it is further explained by the general kind of personal conflict that he talks about later in that chapter. He talks about never paying back evil for evil to anyone. Do not be overcome by evil, he says, but overcome evil with good. An apt word, for example. When we're wronged in some way, or when we perceive that we have been wronged in some way. Sometimes it's just our perception, right? In our day-to-day interactions with others, you know, we conquer with self-sacrifice of refusing to seek revenge. That cold shoulder, for example, even. And very amazingly, to the degree that Christians practice such self-sacrifice, ironically, they exercise their end-time messianic reign in the kingdom with Christ. This is foolishness to the world, and yet wisdom in Christ. And to whom do you prefer to be associated? The world with Christ. Well, let's go on and to the conclusion that Beale gives here in his book. And it's largely a conclusion to chapter 6. Um, some very interesting things we'll cover here. For unbelievers at some point in their life, they're going to suffer retributive irony. They're going to be punished by 
um, I'm talking about unbelievers, punished by their means of their own sin. Well, honestly, believers are often punished by the means of our own sin, aren't we? The elect of God, us believers, those who do or will savingly believe in one way or another, in some time or another, in God's timing, will experience a restorative, a restoring irony. Remember the irony of the cross that we talked about? Even though a believer may appear to be defeated, God will bless him in the midst of his suffering. And even through it, even through it, you don't, we're often just thinking about getting on the other side of it, obviously, understandably, getting over with this. But even through it, there's that victory and that sweetness with him. Persevering in faith. There are sadly many instances in our life as believers when we suffer, even suffer for something not caused by our own sin. And yet, lose our reward in the instance of that trial by responding in a mean or selfish way or a revengeful way. That is vanity. That's the, almost the epitome of vanity. To suffer in a good way, only to, at the end, be spiteful and revengeful in a prideful way. It's imperative to continually cling to Christ in our daily devotion to draw on his strength to overcome these sinful tendencies of revenge and retribution. It's in our hearts, brothers and sisters. It's there. The truth is, without, any, without this, the kind of irony that trials bring, without the irony of these trials, our faith will not grow. Christ was perfected in suffering. Our master, which is why God providentially brings us even seemingly impossible situations, certainly difficult situations. G.K. Bill, he says, he says, the reason that everyone experiences either retributive irony or restorative irony is that they are identified ultimately with either the devil or with Christ. Only two options. Satan experienced judgmental irony when he tried to defeat Christ at the cross. However, as we have seen, talked about, Satan himself suffered defeat. It was Satan who suffered defeat through Christ's death and resurrection. He overcame, our Lord overcame the penalty and the bonds of death in which Satan was attempting to hold him. He was innocent. Even before the resurrection at the cross, Christ not only defeated Satan, but defeated him in the midst of his own suffering and defeat. Through it, he was conquering him by suffering the penalty of other people's sin on the cross. Our Lord was at that very time defeating the devil, delivering those for whom he suffered from captivity to the devil. He saved us. 
The very way by which the devil designed to defeat Christ was the very way by which the devil himself was defeated. Sins coming upon our own heads. And all unbelievers, all who do not trust in and identify with Christ, must identify with Satan and his kingdom. There's only two options. This is what the Bible teaches. This also means that such people identify with the ironic pattern of the devil's destiny. It's not a good destiny. And like him, may appear to be victorious in this life. What a sad thing to be identified with the devil and that live like a pauper. Um, I don't know if that even makes sense, but it's just... You know, their, their destiny is the same as the devil's when they trust in him and identify with him because they're not identifying with the Lord. These victories that they have are frustrated by God and it's evident in their spiritual defeat. And it happens in the midst of their apparent worldly success or in the midst of their oppression of believers. They are being defeated while we are experiencing spiritual victories. That's the irony of the judgment. Beale says that even now they begin to suffer eternal death and that they are already separated from God's presence, which is the essence of spiritual death. His loving presence not that God is not everywhere but his countenance his loving countenance in contrast us true believers we are like our our Lord and Savior Savior we represent Christ the restorative irony displayed in Christ's suffering life and death is displayed in our lives because we are being conformed to his image. Through suffering, even, being conformed to his image. That is living a cruciform life where our faith in the midst of suffering indicates that we are winning spiritual victories, even though it looks like we're being defeated. Again, this is true so long as we cling to Christ in faith. In Revelation 13, verses 16 through the first verse in 14, it depicts two kinds of people in the world. Okay? And the character and destiny of each. John writes, Also it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, this He's writing about the beast, okay? The beast. Causes all, both small and great, this beast causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or on the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. For it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Then I looked, and behold, this is part of that vision, 
Then I looked, and behold, on the mount, on Mount Zion, stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. One is this mark, this number of a man. Other has the name, God's name, the father's name written on their foreheads. This is, you know, I'm going to share with you now some of Beale's great analysis on this passage find much more specific detail in his commentary on the book of Revelation. But he goes on, he tells us that this first beast represents the unbelieving state, which in first century was Rome. Now, this first beast is a representative of Satan on earth who does Satan's bidding. They those Christians, these churches to whom John's writing, they understood that oppression from the state and the people that were participating in it. Now, the second beast is kind of like the, the PR man, as Bill calls it, the PR man for the first beast. And he argues it probably represents the local authorities to some degree, even these guilds, if you will, um, as they witnessed many of the, the Christians. You know, this beast does all he can to get people to believe in and worship and obey the first beast. Now, this passage in Revelation is, is about unbelievers taking on the character of the dark prince, of Satan himself. Now, in this respect, unbelievers are portrayed as receiving a mark on the right hand or on their forehead which is explained as the name of really the first beast or the number of his name. And this beast, as we have seen, is the earthly agent and representative of the dragon, of Satan himself. Now, this mark on the unbeliever, it's invisible since the counterpart name on the true believer is invisible. You know, God's people had Christ's name, uh, the name of the Father written on their foreheads. So many things I've heard throughout the years of what this could be. Um, there, yeah, it's invisible. Just as the name of the Father written on the heads of the believers, it's, it's evident that the two have a parallel spiritual nature here. That's Something we should understand when we're reading here, that sp parallel spiritual nature. It's intended to be compared and contrasted. Uh, the point of saying that worshipers of the beast have his name written on their head is to underscore the fact that they are identified with him. And that retributive irony already. Identified with him, with his character, and that, that destiny. The identification of the beast and his followers with this number of man, 666, indicates the old, imperfect, earthly character of the beast's followers. The number seven, as we come to understand and study through scripture, refers to completeness. That's a theme carried out throughout all of scripture. 
This suggests that the triple sixes are intended as a contrast with those divine sevens, if you will, throughout the book, and it signifies incompleteness, imperfection. And that's what they have. They think they, they are the person, that they are victors, and they're the masters of their own domain, and all those things that they got affirm about themselves. And yet they are incomplete because they do not have Christ. If the number of those 144,000 saints in that following verse has the figurative force of signifying the complete number of God's people in Christ, then the intentional contrast, Bill says, with the, that 666 in the preceding verse would refer to the beast and his people as being inherently incomplete. What is, you know, 12 tribes, 12 times 12,000, 12,000 being a complete, also a number that runs throughout scripture of completeness. It's that compare and contrast we're supposed to understand here. You know, the beast and his followers, they strive to be complete in and of themselves, outside of God, outside of Christ. They can never achieve seven. They're always 666. The number of incompleteness. That, rep- that repetition of the sixes three times indicates the completeness of sinful incompleteness, Beale argues as they are found in the beast. Completely incomplete. He goes on arguing that the reason for using sixes instead of sevens is to describe the beast in verse 18 is that of the repeated emphasis that we find in Revelation 13 in this passage that we went through as being a counterfeit Christ. That first beast is a counterfeit Christ. A counterfeit prophet. That, that number in Revelation 13 is that of incomplete humanity apart from Christ. That is fallen man. That is each and every one of us until we were saved. Until the Spirit came and gave us the heart of flesh. We were born again. Humanity was created on the sixth day, but without the seventh day of rest, Adam and Eve would have been imperfect and incomplete. A rest they never fully inherited. All right, I need to wrap it up here. We're running out of time. Basically, what he's arguing here is the character that unbelievers unwittingly resemble is always incomplete. That's the irony here. They are outside of God's special blessing in this fallen world. And to sum it all up, God's way of redeeming fallen man is foolishness to the world, but wise unto God. It's wise unto eternal life.